and restore. That was delayed. That was a delay response. Thank you, sir. All right, well, happy Sunday. Uh, if we have not had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Nicole. I am the spiritual formation pastor here at Restore. Um, and I gotta be honest, prepping a sermon for this week felt really weird, felt really strange, because this Sunday kind of feels a little weird, a little strange. It's sort of this kind of uh, transitional Sunday, kind of interim Sunday, um, as we as a church are really kind of transitioning out of this series that Justin wrapped up for us last week, covering the book of Ruth. Um, and they're now seeking to transition into the season of Easter. That, of course, is just one week away. Um, and not just us, but as we talked about a couple weeks back, really the big C church, many of these Christian denominations are also experiencing this transition coming out of the season of Lent and, and now transitioning into Holy Week. And so as I was kind of wrestling over that, I was like, you know what, let's just let it be what it is. This is a transitional Sunday. Let's call it what it is. And we are going to use this Sunday to do our best uh, to prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls to make this transition well. Because the reality is, this is going to be kind of a difficult transition to make, right? I mean, coming out of this season where we have been focusing and reflecting on things like suffering and grief, things like the realities of being human in a broken and fallen world. As we as a church have week after week been reflecting on the story of Ruth and Naomi and are witnessing week after week their suffering and the realities of what it meant for them to be these vulnerable women in an incredibly broken time and culture. To transition from that all of a sudden now to the season of life and of hope and of abundance, the season of redemption and restoration and resurrection, that's a pretty significant shift. But lucky for us, I actually think that this week, beginning today, this holy week, is actually designed to really help us make that transition well. I think if we can use this week to reflect and meditate on all of the uh, last and final moments and events of Jesus' life, it actually helps us quite a bit to sort of walk alongside him, enter into that process with him and even through him, as he himself will make a transition from death into life. So beginning this morning, we're going to start some of that reflection. We're going to spend some time reflecting on this first day of Holy Week being Palm Sunday. So I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer first, and then we'll dive on in. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you expectant, God. We come before you ready for you to move, for you to speak to us, for you to speak through us, for you to just show up in a way that is present, in a way that is sweet, in a way that helps to just ready our hearts and minds to celebrate you, to celebrate your life, your sacrifice, your son. Would you help us ready ourselves this morning? We pray all these things in the sweet name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so fun fact about Palm Sunday. This is actually one of the few events in Jesus' life that is recorded in every single one of the Gospels. All right, so all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they each give their own account of this event and all sort of highlight different aspects to it for their own reasons. 
So this morning, the account that we are going to specifically be looking at is the account that we find in the Gospel of John. And I want to tell you why that is, because I think it's going to be important for where we head this morning. You see, according to John himself, the entire purpose for his gospel, the entire reason he's writing it, recording the events that he does and the way that he does, is, quote, from John's own words, so that you, you the reader, you who comes across this gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in him. So this is the entire point of what John is writing, is to help whoever reads these accounts and and these words to believe, believe that Jesus really was the Christ, he really was the Son of God, he really did come, and in coming, made a way for all to experience life in him. Now, I don't know if it's just because I took a spiritual gifts test a few weeks back, and faith just happened to be the lowest scored on all of my results, or because we are coming out of another incredibly emotional and grueling week in light of yet another national tragedy, the response to which has been more and more polarizing arguments, thoughts, prayers, and sentiments that are nowhere, anywhere near enough. But what I think I need this morning, what I think we all need, is just some help believing. I think we need a lot of help. I think we need all of the words and stories and signs and wonders that our God is willing to give to help us hold on to belief. To help us hold on to faith. That he really is who he says he is. That he really did what he says he did. His son really did come and in doing so, really did accomplish a victory that really does change everything. And my prayer this morning is that specifically going through John's account, we may get some help in that belief. So let's find out. All right, let's dive on in uh, to John's account of Palm Sunday. We find it in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. He writes, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So we enter here into John's version of the narrative about five days before Passover. And we see that Jesus is entering into the holy city of Jerusalem. And we also see that he is entering into this city alongside a pretty massive grouping of people. These people are also on their way into the city, specifically to celebrate the festival of Passover. Now, an event like this could be somewhat comparable to me and my Hispanic brethren 
descending upon the city of San Antonio around this time of year to celebrate what we call Fiesta. Now, I realize this example may be lost on most of you, being from and living in Houston, but give me my moment, okay? Because Fiesta is a big deal for us San Antonians. Don't ask us what we're celebrating. Don't ask us what it's for or why it happens every year. All we know is it is 11 days of a citywide party with parades and food and music and drink. And so us Latinos, we show up. All right, we come in waves and we come ready to celebrate. All right, that is the type of event that is going on as Jesus is entering into this holy city. And as this massive grouping of people, these, this massive crowd gets wind that Jesus is near, they are amped. Jesus, by this point, has garnered quite a reputation for himself. Through all of these signs and wonders that he has been performing, signs and wonders that have become increasingly more public and grand. And so when this crowd hears that he is on his way, they come running. They come eager, and they come expectant. But here's the thing about running to Jesus with eagerness and expectancy. It is to run to Jesus with great excitement, yes. But it is also to run to him with great expectations, expectations that we will see here in John's account that do not always line up with the reality of who he is and what he came to do. You see, these crowds, they run to Jesus and they bring with them these palm branches. Now, most of us can assume there's some sort of significance here to the palm branch. It is, after all, what this Sunday is named after. However, what's important for us to understand is why they are significant to these people at this time. Now, it is true at this time, these palm branches would have in some way been associated with festivity and celebration. However, what's important to note is that they were associated with a very particular festival known as the Feast of the Tabernacles. This was an annual feast celebrated by the Israelites in order to celebrate and honor Yahweh's provision. The only issue is that feast would have occurred about six months prior to this event, six months prior to Passover. And so it is very unlikely that what these palm branches are being used to signify is celebration alone. It would be like us showing up to Easter in a Halloween costume. Right, like, I think we'd all know, okay, I think that's for Halloween or some sort of celebration, but like, why is that here? It just doesn't fit. You see, what is far more likely is that these palm branches were being used not just to represent celebration, but also rebellion. You see, about two centuries prior, there was a man named Simon the Maccabee. And he ushered in this revolt, this uprising against Syrian armies that freed the city of Jerusalem. The successful revolt was celebrated with music and the waving of palm branches. And so in the two centuries that followed, the palm branch had grown to become quite the national symbol. It was the symbol of pride, of hope, and of freedom. 
a sign used to remember and honor this successful uprising, this successful rebellion. And so as these crowds run to Jesus in all of their eagerness, with their palms, they also show they are running with great expectation that this man, he just may be this next great military leader. He is our next great political king who is going to usher in the next great revolt, the next great rebellion that is finally going to free us once and for all from the powers that be, from Rome. The people cry out, Hosanna. They cry out, save us. And we're beginning to recognize here that that cry It is loaded with all sorts of ideas and assumptions as to what that salvation needs to look like. And church, is this not what we continue to do today? Do we not continue to run after Jesus with, albeit great eagerness, but also while carrying great expectations? Do we not continue to cry out, Hosanna, cry out, save us, and not always recognize just how loaded that cry really is with all sorts of ideas and assumptions as to what that salvation needs to look like? Now, I want to be clear. Expectations are not bad. They are not wrong to have. In fact, they are incredibly natural. They are something we all have whether or not we even know it. We are all constantly holding on to and operating out of these expectations of ourselves, of others, and yes, even of our God. The issue is, the trouble comes, trouble with ourselves, with others, and even faith in our God, is when we refuse to acknowledge these expectations. And we forget to recognize that they're even there. And so when these expectations go unmet, we end up disappointed, feeling let down, maybe even feeling a little resentful. And so if we're going to talk about faith this morning, if we're going to talk about belief, True belief in this Jesus, in our Savior, we need to talk about expectations. We need to talk about and recognize and acknowledge what are the ideas, the beliefs, the unearthed presuppositions that we hold on to that have maybe been given to us by our parents, by former churches, by our culture, by our trauma that we don't even recognize we are running to Jesus with laying those expectations down before him, only to inevitably be let down, disappointed, or maybe even resentful. When Jesus, he just treads right over those expectations, just walks right past them in a way that is altogether different, is altogether surprising, 
in a way that completely leaves our expectations in the dust and yet moves forward on to something that is actually better. Right, because as these crowds cry out, Hosanna, as they cry out, save us, what does Jesus do? He doesn't come in on some noble steed, seeking to meet their expectation of this triumphant military entry. He doesn't come in on a chariot, trying to meet them at their assumption of what nobility and regality should look like. No. He grabs a donkey. And he reveals himself to be exactly who he truly is. This revelation of who Jesus is that uh, we see here in verse 13, it actually comes from a prophecy found in the book originally of a Zechariah. And so I'm going to read a little bit um, more of that prophecy that comes from Zechariah just to give us a, a fuller context of who exactly Jesus is proclaiming he is in this moment. The prophecy comes from Zechariah 9.9, and it says this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is who Jesus is. A king, yes, but not just over Israel, not just seeking to gain their political freedom. No, he is a king over every nation whose rule will reign from sea to sea. And that rule, it will not come in fear. It will not be accomplished by chariots or war horses or weapons. It will not be ushered in through rebellion, through revolt, through uprising. It will come through humility, through lowliness. It will seek to usher in a peace. This is who Jesus reveals himself to be. As he just treads right on over all of their expectations in a boldness and a confidence that is assured. I may not be meeting your current assumptions of who I should be, but who I am, what I came to do, it is better. It is far more superior. It can and will surpass any expectation you could ever have, expectations you aren't even bold enough to want yet. That's the thing about our expectations, church. They aren't silly. They aren't shameful. They aren't bad or wrong to have. No. Often they're completely understandable, the expectations we have. The thing is, all too often, 
they're just too dang small. Our expectations, they are too dang limited. They are too momentary. They are too insufficient. They are too short-sighted when compared to the eternal standard of our far superior king whose ways are higher, whose ways are better, whose ways make a way for a provision, a joy, and a fulfillment. Often, we aren't even bold enough to want for ourselves. And so what belief is, what faith often looks like, it is adjusting our expectations. Disappointment. So I better sweep this under the rug and pretend everything's okay and like his ways are higher, yay, and call that faith. No. No, we, we raise our expectation. We heighten it in this belief, in this faith that says, whoever he reveals himself to be, however he reveals his ways to look, I believe, I have full faith, it will be better. It will be far superior. It will be more fulfilling and joy-filled than any expectation I could form on my own. We adjust our expectations to make way for even greater expectations. We adjust our expectations to open our hearts and our minds to a well far deeper, an expanse far more vast, of what is possible when it comes to our own joy and our own fulfillment. Now, where I see this type of faith become the most difficult by far, where I've seen this adjusting of expectations just be grueling, and I know myself and so many others, I've had the privilege of serving over the last several years. It's when it comes down to this issue of God's power and his care over evil. When it comes to our understanding and our belief and our faith that God cares and has a power over evil, if we're being honest with ourselves, that comes loaded with a lot of expectations. A lot of ideas and a lot of assumptions of what we believe his care and his power should look like. But as I have wrestled with this question, with this reality, with others, with myself over the years, here's one thing I've come to find incredibly true. God cares about the evil in this world. He has a power over it, and he is doing incredible and radical things about it but goodness, is he doing it in ways that we do not expect. He is doing it through women like Taylor Schumann. Taylor Schumann is an author and a shooting survivor who has committed her life to the education and the informing of others of the complexities and the realities and the difficulties of gun reform in this country. She has committed her life to educating ignorant and angry people like myself who just get pissed off and don't know what to do. And she has opened my eyes 
to what's actually going on, ways to actually help these organizations, like every town, the 97%, Moms Demand Action, Students Demand Action, the Sandy Hook Promise, these organizations that are working daily. Not just when an event happens, minute by minute working, implementing slow, incremental progress, progress. We are often too distracted by our own expectations to even know about. God is doing things about the evil in this world. And he is doing it through women like my friend Fong. Fong works for an anti-human trafficking nonprofit. And what makes uh, the nonprofit she works for a little bit more unique is that they specifically seek to work on the side of the demand. So what that means is they intentionally seek to bring restoration and healing for the purpose of preventing the motivation behind wanting to purchase or traffic a human being. Their programs and their education and their work, it is catered toward those that have or have the potential to purchase or traffic an individual. Did you know a nonprofit existed specifically to show love, healing, and restoration to the most evil and darkest corner of an already evil and dark issue? I sure as heck didn't. I wouldn't have even thought that there was something to do. And yet God knew. And he's doing something about it in and through my friend Fong and her team who work daily to show care and God's provision over an incredibly dark corner of this world most of us don't even think about. He is doing things about evil, and he is doing it through women like my friend Maggie. Maggie runs a nonprofit, specifically uh, serving families and children involved in the foster system. I don't have to be the first one to say, we all know how broken and overwhelmed and heartbreaking the foster system is in this country. Right, so when I think of people that would probably be the most resentful the most bitter, the most constantly disappointed at God. Where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you showing up? It would be people like Maggie who are just in the trenches constantly. I mean, experiencing and seeing this brokenness day in and day out, seeing what it does to these kids, seeing what it does to these families, and yet this is what she has to say about how she sees God in her work every day. She writes, he is a God of abundance, not scarcity. He is a God of compassion, not apathy. And he will show up every single time. He has used friends, family, and strangers to show me how much he cares about kids and families going through the foster system. He does not forget about them. God cares about the evil in this world. He has power over it, and he is doing something about it. 
but boy, is he doing it in ways that completely defy our expectations. And so we adjust. We adjust our expectations. We adjust our focus onto what he is actually doing, where he is active, and how he is showing that care and that power, even if it is in ways far slower, far smaller, in ways that require far more patience, far more endurance, far more listening and being involved and, and working together, but ways that we wholeheartedly believe are better our superior will bring far more joy and far more fulfillment than anything we could do ourselves. Now, before anyone accuses me of getting too idealistic up here, right? Anyone goes too far down that, that thought of, okay, this sounds nice, but like, let's be real. There is one more element to all this faith and belief stuff that I think John makes really clear here. And it's actually the very reason I chose to go through John's account. Because he gives us this sweet, intimate little detail about what is actually going on in the hearts and the minds of the disciples in this moment. You see, where every other gospel account really just gives us um, this obedience and kind of following of instruction from the disciples, where they actually go and acquire the donkey for Jesus, John leaves all of that out. And it's almost like he's like, okay, if y'all want to be all impressed about the disciples and their obedience and their following of Jesus and doing what he, what he says, you can go read the other accounts. What I'm going to make clear in mine they had no idea what was going on. They did not understand. They did not get it. They didn't get any of it. They didn't get the purpose of this donkey. They didn't get the reality that it was the fulfillment of some prophecy. They certainly didn't get that the fulfillment of that prophecy was Jesus radically displaying that he was, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, they were just straight confused. And this is actually just the beginning. As we continue on in the week and continue to reflect on all of Jesus' final days and moments, the Last Supper, the prayer in the garden, his arrest and subsequent torture, his death, even in the earliest moments of him being raised to life, we will see time and time again the disciples do not understand. They are straight confused. We will see them experience incredible disappointment, agony, fear. They will mourn and they will grieve and they will weep as slowly but surely every last one of their expectations of their friend of their teacher, of their Lord, are just stripped away. As his way and who he really is is slowly and even painfully revealed to them. This is the reality of true belief and radical faith. 
it is not devoid of confusion. It is able to hold within it complete misunderstanding, complete confusion and frustration, moments of disappointment, times where we will mourn and we will grieve and we will weep as we slowly loosen our white-knuckle grip on these expectations of how we thought life would go and who we thought God was going to be, how we thought he was going to show up. We see that in the disciples, and I think what we also see is that our friend, our teacher, our Lord, he is so patient, and he is so kind, and he is so gentle to let us be confused, to let us ask questions, to carry our disappointment, to allow us to mourn, to even grieve and weep with us. As he asks of us to let go of these ideas and assumptions to make way for what he knows is better. And he, a lot like with his own disciple Thomas, will offer out his scars, his hands, put ours upon it and say, I know. I know this is nothing like what you expected. This is not what you intended. But have faith, child. Believe. I have overcome the grave. Your belief will not be in vain. That is the final point John makes in this account. It is after Jesus' death, his coming back to life, and his return to glory that the disciples finally begin to understand. It is only after his triumphant victory over death that the tides begin to shift, that it starts to make sense, that the disciples' faith begins to actually be worth something, reveals itself to be worth everything. It is only after the disciples are able to see the cross, his death, his agony, and his resurrection, his life, the empty tomb, it is after they are able to hold it all in tandem that it becomes radically clear even in the most evil and vile, inhumane and hopeless of circumstances. Jesus' ability to bring life, to restore and to redeem, to resurrect, it will prevail. And church, I have some really good news for us this morning. We exist in the after. This is where we are not like the disciples. We don't have to wait. We don't have to long. 
We don't have to cross our fingers hoping for some soon coming victory that we really hope is actually going to come. It already came. It already happened. He already died. He was already resurrected. He already sits in glory at the right hand of our God. And so when our expectations go unmet, when we are called into the grueling, sometimes incredibly painful process of adjusting our expectations, when we just don't understand, we don't need to look forward. We look back. We look back at what he already did. We look back on his life, his resurrection, that makes one thing abundantly clear. Even in the most vile and inhumane and hopeless of circumstances, his ability to bring life, restoration, and redemption, it will prevail. It already has would that be what anchors our belief, church? Would that be what holds our faith? Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, what a heavy and confusing and difficult to hold reality faith can feel like sometimes. Lord, as it is this lifelong process of, of learning what it means, of adjusting to what it means, of adjusting to who you are and what you're doing and where you're showing up, God, so this morning we are just thankful that you are kind and you are gentle and you are patient, Lord. As we walk this difficult road, as we try to figure this out and make mistakes and have moments of victory along the way, you are here for all of it, God. What a treasure, what a joy to know that this is true. Would you continue to prove it true throughout this week, God? Would you bring us and, and allow us moments to reflect further, Lord, on your final days, on your final moments, as we ourselves seek to make this transition of recognizing the death and the brokenness and the sin in this world, but allowing that to stir our affection, to get us ready, to make us eager for life. Life you have promised us, God. Life we know is coming. Would that be what prevails in our hearts? Whatever comes this week, God. We pray all of these things in the sweet name of Jesus Christ. Amen.